marketing companies are very clever beasts. Uh, one of my favorite shows that has been canceled now, a bit of a shame, it was called The Gruen Transfer. It's a show where different bosses from marketing companies would come together and talk through ads that were featuring on TV at the moment and think through what made them good, what made them work. Uh, marketing companies spend lots of money researching us so that they can manipulate us and they can tell us what we need and they can make sure that we buy their product. Uh, problem is they just make things up. They lie about their product all the time. So whether it be Coca-Cola, uh, what words do you guys associate with Coke? Let's see how well they've done the job. Happiness. That's what Coke promises. Coke shows these pictures of sunniness. Sunniness is not a word, is it? What's the word I'm looking for there? Sunshine. That's the one. Sunshine, friends. You look cool when you open your bottle of Coke. Or Red Bull. What does Red Bull promise? Wings. Uh, They do not live up to that promise. I've drunk Red Bull. I do not have wings. Um, But they associate themselves with extreme sports to try to build up this profile. What's the reality with Red Bull, though? It's a can full of sugar um, that rots you, I guess. That's what Red Bull is actually in reality, but they promise so much. Or it could be that cosmetic company that promises a more beautiful you. Which one is it? I was trying to think. That's a tagline for someone, isn't it? No one's been using cosmetics lately? Okay. Someone offers a more beautiful you. We're surrounded by these marketing companies and these brands that promise so much, but don't deliver. And so we've become, in general life, a bit jaded and a bit skeptical. When we hear a good offer, we think, there must be a catch here. It can't quite be true. And we bring that same attitude to Jesus. When we hear who he claims to be and what he claims to have done, we think, really? Can he really be that important? Or is he just trumping himself up, making these big boasts about himself that he can't actually live up to? Tonight, we're going to see Jesus hanging on the cross through eyewitness testimony that's been put together in one of four Gospels that we have in the Bible, four biographies of Jesus. We're going to look at the eyewitness testimony in Matthew. We're going to see through the way the story is presented there that these events that took place really in history show that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he really has done what he came to do. Now we're jumping into Matthew chapter 27, uh, and like a movie or a book, if you come in late in the movie, you're going to miss a lot. You're going to see these characters getting angry and you're thinking, what on earth is happening? You've missed most of the story. So I don't want to do that to you guys in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to race through the story of Matthew and see the relevant bits that will help us understand what we've just had read for us in Matthew chapter 27. In the first sentence of Matthew's gospel, this is where we get Jesus introduced. And Matthew's historical story of Jesus' life and death introduces him as the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The Messiah there is a particular word for the nation of Israel. When Jesus comes on the scene of history 2,000 years ago, he doesn't step into a vacuum, but steps into historical context where the nation of Israel have been waiting for God to come and rescue them for many years. It's been about 600 years since this nation Israel have lived under their own king in their own land. And across those 600 years, they've had a rough time. They've been oppressed by various nations and other kingdoms. They've been mocked. They've been killed. Uh, They haven't had it easy. So they're looking forward to this king who would come and give them release from these enemies. 
the Messiah. Now, Jesus claiming to be the Messiah would be a big enough claim on its own. You know, this is fulfilling 600 years of expectation. But he goes even further. Notice in that first sentence of Matthew, Jesus claims to be the one and only Son of God. That is, to be divine, eternally existing with God the Father. Jesus claims to be the creator and the ruler of the world. Now, before he makes this claim about himself, others say it about him. So when Jesus is baptized, there's a voice that booms from the heavens saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God says it about Jesus. This is my Son. Sometime later, after Jesus has been going around the region of Galilee, preaching and teaching and healing, he asks his followers, Who do people say that I am? Now, there's a bit of confusion uh, amongst some of the people around, but one of Jesus' followers hits the nail on the head. Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. There's the claim about Jesus' identity, the Messiah, the Son of God. And as you hear that tonight, the very question that Jesus brought to his disciples is the question that comes to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's not enough to go off who your parents say that Jesus is. Enough to go off who your friends say that Jesus is. It's a question that you have to answer individually. Who do you think Jesus is? Does he live up to these claims to be Messiah, the King? Is he really the Son of God? As we move towards the 27th chapter of Matthew, we see Jesus hanging on the cross and those who pass by him mock him for these very claims. People are walking past saying, come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. The religious leaders of the day who had rejected Jesus, they're mocking him as well. They're saying, he's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, then we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the Son of God. They knew Jesus' claims and they didn't believe him. They killed him instead. As all this is taking place, there's another character in the story here, a person who was there those 2,000 years ago in history, a Roman centurion, military commander. He's standing by with his soldiers, keeping watch over Jesus and these other criminals who have been crucified at the same time, watching and waiting for them to die. Tonight, I want you to try to practice your skills of imagination, your skills of empathy, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of that Roman centurion those 2,000 years ago. Try to see this scene through his eyes. That morning, you laughed in Jesus' face and spat on him. You twisted together some thorny sticks into a crown and jammed it down onto his head, causing blood to trickle. You got a heavy hammer and stretched out his arms and drove nails through his wrists. Now, that sounds severe, but to you as a Roman centurion, you've done this many times before. This is not too novel. No, you've done it to two other criminals that same day. But over Jesus' head, you've hung a particular sign marking out his crime for which he's being killed. You've put up this sign saying, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, you're standing there, middle of the morning. It's probably about 11 o'clock by the time you've raised Jesus up on the cross. And as you're standing there watching and waiting for these criminals to die, it hits midday. And all of a sudden, it becomes pitch black. 
There's a darkness. The, the sun has just been blotted out. Now, you know it's not an eclipse because you saw the full moon last night, the time of the year that it was when Jesus was crucified. We know there was a full moon. So this couldn't be a solar eclipse. There's this strange darkness that has just hit at midday. It stays dark for three hours. And then at three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus shouts out from the cross with a loud voice in a language that you can't understand. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. You can't understand what he's saying, but you can hear the emotion that's in his voice. He's speaking with anguish. This isn't the forced whisper of a dying man. This is a shout, unlike anything that you've heard before from dying men. Now, some people standing nearby, they think that he's calling for Elijah. Elijah's an old and powerful prophet, and they think that he's calling for Elijah to come and save him. But as you look around and watch, no one comes. Then a little bit later, you hear this Jesus crying out again with a loud voice, and his head drops onto his chest, and he dies. Instantly, there is a great earthquake. Rocks are splitting, your legs are shaking, you're trying to brace yourself against your spear. You might even fall to the ground. The quake is that severe. I mean, boulders are splitting into pieces. This is a heavy earthquake. And it's still dark. Then as the earthquake settles down, then the light comes back into the sky. If you were there and saw all that take place, what would you think? How would you feel? It's exactly what this Roman centurion who was there all those years ago saw and felt. In verse 54, we find recorded his reaction. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. They realized that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that Jesus really was God's only Son. They had just mocked him about it, and they now recognize that they're wrong. They are rightly terrified. They've just killed God's Son. I mean, if you happen to kill a child, don't ever do that, that's a bad idea. But if you happen to kill a child, and then you realize that this this was the president's son, you're going to be in a lot of trouble. The whole force of the American nation is going to come against you for killing the president's son. Imagine you've killed God's son. That is terrifying. Jesus' death was no ordinary death. It was accompanied by this inexplicable darkness in the middle of the day and this severe earthquake. You might look at that and say, that was just coincidence. But these soldiers didn't think so. And so the question comes, who do you think Jesus is? Perhaps you've been dragged along here tonight by a family member or by a friend. Perhaps you come in here as someone who has been mocking Jesus, mocking his followers, Christians. Or perhaps you come in here tonight as someone who has just relegated Jesus to that position of being a nice guy. Yeah, he's a good teacher, but he's largely irrelevant for you. As we see the historical account of what happened as Jesus died, that has to shake things up for you, doesn't it? 
Jesus was who he claimed to be. Israel's king and the son of God. In one of the early prophecies about this coming king, it was written about a thousand years before Jesus actually came onto the scene, God's opponents are encouraged to kiss his son or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his fierce anger can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When it encourages God's opponents there to kiss God's son, it's not saying give him some romantic kiss. It's a figure of worship, of reference, of recognizing that here is someone so powerful and I need to submit to his will. He is the king. Kiss the son or he will be angry for his fierce anger can flare up in a moment. If you've been mocking Jesus or even just ignoring him, you ought to be with the centurion feeling terrified for truly Jesus is the son of God. Now, for many of us tonight, though that's not the position that we come here in, we are those people who have taken refuge in God's Son. We are those who have believed in and trusted in Jesus. So we come not with that terror anymore, but in the refuge of God's Son. But let's not forget who this Jesus is. Even for us, let's be careful that we don't slip into an uncaring, casual complacency towards Jesus. There's a reality in which Jesus is our friend. But we can't separate that from the reality that this is God's son who is our friend. Let's not presume upon him. Well, there's our first point about the authentic Jesus tonight. Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the Messiah, the son of God. We've still got the other question. Can he actually pull off what he came to do? Or is he just going to be like one of these ads that promises so much and lets us down? It's like the Lynx deodorant and you spray it on and you're not swarmed by half-naked women. Those links ads are horrendous. Yeah, anyway, I hope you don't want that in your life. Uh, is Jesus just going to be like that? Or will he actually pull off what he came to do? We need to find out first of all, what was Jesus' mission? What did he come and live for? What was he hoping to do with his life? If we go again right back to the first chapter of Matthew's gospel. We find an angel announcing that Jesus' name is given to him for a particular reason. Jesus is to be called Jesus, the Hebrew name Yeshua, because he will save his people from from their sins. That Hebrew name Yeshua means God will deliver. God saves. Jesus comes to save people. As I said earlier, Israel was looking forward to this king who would come to save them, who would rescue them from their enemies. At this point in history, that was the Romans. But Jesus comes bringing a far bigger rescue. Not just from the Romans, but a rescue from sin. Sin. It's a little word that means so much. We have all disobeyed God. We've all done things that we know deep down displease Him. I don't think we really grasp how deep and severe our problem is, how offensive our actions are towards God, until we see what it took for God to save us from our sin. If we move forward from chapter 1 of Matthew to chapter 26, we find Jesus, the night before he would die, sharing a Passover meal with his close followers, his disciples. Have a look at what he said to them in verse 28. He gives his followers a cup of wine and announces, This is my blood of the covenant, 
which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. How will Jesus save us from our sins? What will it take to bring this forgiveness? It will take his blood being poured out. It will take the death of God's only son. That is how serious sin is. It can't be dealt with by a few good deeds, just by cooking a meal for our sick friend, by giving away lots of money. Even giving money to the church won't do it. It won't be solved by going on that OE and volunteering in an orphanage or an animal shelter. Adding on these good works to life, if that could save us from sin, do you think God would have sent his son into the world to die? No. We needed God's son to die. That was the only solution. And we see that Jesus knew this was the very purpose of his life. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus declares, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to die. I chat to lots of people out and around Auckland. So many people think that Jesus came to be a good moral teacher to show us the way to live loving lives, to teach us some values and ethics that we might follow. Or some others think that he came and his purpose in life was to challenge oppressive political leadership. They think that he was a political figure that just wanted to show that all these structures and systems in society are wrong. But that goes against what Jesus said about himself. Jesus knew what he came to do. And it wasn't to teach. It wasn't to challenge political leadership. Jesus came and lived so that he might die. He came to die and he died for you to save you from your sins. So if we come now to that record in Matthew 27 that was read for us earlier and walk through this account of Jesus' death, we'll see that in this death, Jesus has achieved what he came to do. Have another look at verse 45. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. We saw earlier that this is a weird darkness. But as we fit it within the overall story of the scriptures, we see that God often uses language of light and the sun to refer to himself. I like the sun. When it gets to winter, we've had some windy, rainy days this week. Uh, It gets me sad because sunshine and light is good. Light brings warmth. It's, it's necessary for life. So God often aligns himself with this image of the sun, the one who brings light and life and goodness and happiness. Darkness, when the sun is blotted out, that's a sign that God has withdrawn his goodness. When darkness comes over the land at this time 2,000 years ago, God has left the scene. Verse 46, alongside this midday darkness that symbolizes God's judgment, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are chilling words. These are not words spoken by Jesus in a calm, considered tone. They're not that forced grunt of a dying man. No, these are words like those of a child who has been snatched away from her parents, screaming out, Mom! Mom! Where are you? 
My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Throughout Jesus' life, he knew the deepest of intimacy with God, his Father. He said at one point, All things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. You capture there the intimacy of this relationship between Father and Son. Now, my relationship with my dad, that's pretty unique and special. I like dad. I called him on the phone this week to wish him happy Easter. Uh, We've done things together that have bound us together and give us a unique and special relationship. Uh, He knows things about me that no one else knows. I know things about him that no one else knows. Um, As special as that relationship is, I know that mum and dad share an even deeper intimacy than I do with him. They've had, I think, 45 years of married life together, getting to know one another going through the ups and downs of life together. Time spent together brings intimacy and closeness. Jesus has never been without his father ever. Everything that he has done has been alongside and with his father. Until here on the cross, that intimacy is broken for the first time in all eternity. This is the moment that Jesus is saving us from our sin. How? What's the connection there? Well, our sin displeased God and separated us from him. But he patiently overlooked it for a time, knowing that one day he would deal with sin properly. All of our sin, all of those things that you've ever done or thought or said that you're ashamed of, and all of those things you don't even know that you've done or thought or said that do displease God. All of our lies, our greed, our porn addictions, our gossiping, our adultery, our stealing and fraud, and the list could go on, couldn't it? All of that Jesus claimed the responsibility for. And Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for that sin, that punishment that was death, and separation from God. As Jesus cries out from the cross, experiences this horrific separation from his Father, that is what we deserved. And Jesus takes it for us. How can we go on living in sin when we hear that despairing cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Jesus uttered that cry so that you never have to. Jesus experienced this horrific separation so that you never have to. Jesus died to save his people from their sins. As the story goes on in Matthew, he tells us a whole bunch of things that happened that just go to show that this salvation really has come. So in verse 47, we find some more people mocking Jesus. When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. There's one person there trying to be nice, but the others stop him. 
they may have misheard what Jesus was shouting, but it's more likely that they heard and understood and they just chose to keep mocking him like they'd been doing all morning. What's the basis for this mockery with Elijah? There is a basis in the Old Testament that Israel was hoping for, just like they were hoping for the Messiah to come. They expected on the basis of the prophecy that they had in the Old Testament that Elijah would come first. And so even today, if you join a Jewish family for Passover, which is a great cultural experience if you ever get the chance, uh, you'll notice that they leave an extra cup of wine for Elijah to drink. And at one point in the meal, the youngest child in the family goes to the door, opens the door, just to check if Elijah might be there to come. Because they're still waiting for Elijah. But every year they're disappointed. There's no Elijah there. And, And they will keep being disappointed because what they've missed is that the Messiah has come. Elijah already came. Elijah didn't come at this point to save Jesus off the cross. He'd already come then as well. In chapter 17 of Matthew, we learn that John the Baptist is Elijah. John the Baptist came to point people towards Jesus. He came to testify that Jesus was the one who would take away the sins of the people. Elijah has come, and so the Messiah has come and has achieved his goal. Now, amidst all this mockery, amidst the pain of being nailed to the cross, Jesus is still in full control of his faculties. And in verse 50, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Yeah, it's true to say that Jesus was executed, but you notice in the way that the story is told here, we sense that Jesus chose precisely when he would die. Things weren't out of his control here. He came to die and he chose when it would happen not fading out slowly, but with all the energy left to pull himself up off the cross and utter another loud shout. Then he gave up his spirit. And suddenly, starts verse 51, straight away as Jesus dies, this crazy stuff starts happening. The curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. Now the sanctuary or the temple was the place where Israel would go to try to deal with their sin. But the solutions, these animal sacrifices that Israel offered, they never lasted. Every day things had to happen in the temple to try to deal with sin. And within that temple, there was this giant curtain. Uh, I don't know how tall it was. I had a look at a picture the other day. It looked like it would have been about 10 meters. I think we'll get there next week when we look at the tabernacle, won't we? Come back next week and you find out how tall the curtain was. It's this giant curtain that kept the people away from the place in the temple where God would actually dwell. They couldn't go in there because of their sin. Only one person, the high priest, and only once a year could go through that curtain to approach God. But notice what happened when Jesus died. That curtain, that blockage between us and God is torn down. Jesus has dealt with sin and there is now free access to God. Back in verse 51, the crazy stuff continues. Precisely at the moment Jesus dies, the earth quaked. And rocks were split. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now along with Israel's hope for a king and for rescue, they looked forward to this day when the dead would be raised. This day of resurrection, a day when all would be raised to life. They connected this day up with the day when God would finally come in judgment. That final judgment day was the day of resurrection. But notice what happens here as Jesus dies. 
God's judgment has come as the Father withdraws from the Son, and so life after death was secured and begun. Jesus rose from the dead, having destroyed death's power. Because, you know, we were never created to die. Death is not natural for us as humans. That's why we feel it as an enemy, why we feel it robs people from us. Humanity was created by God for everlasting life. It was our sin that first brought death into the world as we cut ourselves off from God the life giver. Death's power comes from sin. And so Jesus' resurrection that we celebrate today further demonstrates that salvation from sins really has come in his death on the cross. Jesus could rise from the dead because he had taken away death's power. Having dealt with sin, death no longer had any claim on him. And so like the first fruits on a tree that are a sign of the crop that is to come, well, Jesus' resurrection is the first of many resurrections that will come. That's what's going on with the crazy stuff there in verse 51 and 52, these dead people that come to life and walk around the city talking to people. That would be weird. And I wish the Bible told us what happened after that. You know, we don't know where they went. Did they walk back into their tombs and die again? I would love an answer to that. But the point that's being made here is that in Jesus' death, judgment has come and the resurrection has come. Resurrection life has been secured. And so for you and I, we will be raised. Wherever you think Jesus fits in your life, whether you trust him already or not, you will be raised. Some of us will be raised to everlasting life. Others will be raised to everlasting shame. Friends, this is the authentic Jesus. He's not some disappointing cosmetic that doesn't actually make you look 10 years younger. Rowan's got the key to looking 10 years younger than you are. Ask him later. Jesus is not that. Jesus is who he claimed to be. And he has achieved what he came to do. The one and only son of God came into this world to die. Jesus came to save you and all humanity from your sins. And he is risen. He is now ruling with full authority over all of heaven and all of earth. And he's offering a gift. Salvation and everlasting life to any who would respond to him as he deserves. How will you respond tonight? You could walk out from here and go on in life ignoring Jesus for the most part. You could walk out from here and and keep on mocking Jesus, looking down on his followers and laughing at them. You could do that. But hear the warning from God tonight. If you choose that way of life, if you choose not to trust Jesus and turn to him, you will one day have to deal with your sin yourself. You will come before God, still weighed down with all those things that you've done that displease him, and God will withdraw from you. And you will have to utter your own desperate God-forsaken cry as you're fully and finally cut off from the giver of all that is good. Or perhaps you could walk out from here as someone who does trust Jesus, but you're not really dealing with the sin in your life. You feel content coasting along as a Christian. You got rid of some sin a few years ago, 
but you're pretty comfy with your current level of sin. You're not too bad. There's a few things there that you recognize are wrong, but ah, what's the big deal? As we hear Jesus cry on the cross, my prayer is that we would repent. No matter what attitude you've had coming in here tonight, my prayer is that we would recognize the horror of our sin that pinned Jesus to that cross for us. And so turn away from our sin and treat Jesus as he deserves, as our king, as our saviour. My prayer is that we would go out from here and and search out the sin in our lives that we're unaware of. That we would be praying to God saying, God, hold my sin before my face that I might see it clearly. Know all the things that I'm doing that are not in line with your will. Help me to see those so that I can put them to death in my life. And so that I can glorify in your grace that you love me when I'm a sinner. My prayer is that tomorrow and the next day and the next day, we would continue to hear those words of Jesus from the cross. Know the horror of our sin and repent. I'll admit I found this quite helpful through this past week as I was looking over this and preparing and praying for you guys. I would see moments of temptation where it was quite clear I could either choose to walk in sin or I could choose to trust God and obey him. And the temptation was strong and I could hear the words and hear Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I found that helpful in saying no to sin and yes to godliness. And that's going to be a lifelong daily journey. You don't repent once and then be done with it. Repentance is something that is day by day. And God's grace is fresh every morning. Praise God that because of Jesus' death, we can be forgiven. He died, cut off from God, so that you don't have to. And he is risen. Death's power has been taken away and we can look forward to everlasting life. Let's pray.